Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. In this podcast recorded at the 2019 AUKUS Spring Meeting, you'll hear the Psychology of Joint Replacement Symposium discussion. The moderator is Dr. Brian Springer with panelists Dr. Wayne Sotil and Dr. Padma Guler. They will address the psychological challenges some patients face when having joint replacement surgery and what their physicians can do to help. Well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to invite our two guest speakers to come up onto the, uh, come up onto the podium. You know, we've been, we've been very fortunate over the past uh, four years of doing this spring meeting to have great uh, collaboration with other uh, specialties. If you remember, we had the regional anesthesia uh, group here a couple years back. Uh, we did a symposium with the uh, American College of Rheumatology and then last year uh, with our bariatric surgery uh, colleagues. And um, I think the, the collaboration uh, with them and AUKUS has really helped increase our, our understanding. We hope to continue to do this uh, year after year to identify areas where there's a lot of cross-pollination. And I think this year will be, will be no exception. We have two uh, outstanding, really, uh, leaders uh, in their field. And we're going to talk about a subject that maybe we don't think about enough. Maybe that's a little bit uh, uncomfortable uh, for a lot of us as kind of uh, orthopedic surgeons. Uh, but I think it really does affect the outcome of our patients. Uh, so just by way of disclosures, this is not about the psychology of the surgeons. Uh, that would take a whole meeting in and of itself. Uh, to address all the pathology that's here. This is just purely about uh, uh, patient psychology and what they go through uh, in relationship to, uh, to joint replacement. So let me just posit two clinical scenarios for you. This is a 56-year-old female. She has end-stage osteoarthritis of her knee. She's had two prior arthroscopic surgeries. She's been through all the conservative management. She checks all the boxes to have total knee replacement. You go through everything with her. You walk out of the room and you turn to your clinical assistant. You say, that patient is not going to do well with a knee replacement, right? She otherwise meets all criteria. And how about this situation? 54-year-old male, he's had knee pain for 20 years. He had his ACL reconstructed at age 30. He has end-stage osteoarthritis of his knee, and he's had failure of conservative management. But he's been on 20 milligrams of OxyContin daily and has been using hydrocodone as his predominant form of pain relief over the past seven years. What's the likelihood of success of a knee replacement? in those patients. The problem is what we measure is not necessarily what always directly affects their outcomes. We're looking at range of motion, functional ability, how far they can walk as our predominant outcome measures for successive total joint arthroplasty. But maybe what we don't realize and what we're starting to realize is the influence of psychological distress of pain and function in patients undergoing total joint arthroplasty. And really the success of this procedure that we do goes well beyond just the physical component. We know it has an effect on the outcome, but the question is, is it really modifiable? And how good are we as orthopedic surgeons as looking beyond just our standard measures, using some of these instruments to try and predict this and to try and modify that? And there's evidence that maybe over half of our patients with arthritis have some degree of psychological comorbidity going into surgery. I think what you have to understand is that there are states and there are traits. And states tend to be temporary behaviors or feelings that depend on a patient's situation. So situational depression or patient's anxiety. And then there are traits which are stable characteristics of a patient that happen over their lifetime. So we recently looked at this, Tom Faring did. Uh, we checked uh, PHQ-9 scores on all of our patients preoperatively. And lo and behold, if you actually improve their pain and improve their function, guess what? Their depression seemed to get better and it didn't have a huge influence. What we were probably measuring in some of these patients was situational depression. They were depressed because they had pain and dysfunction from their knee osteoarthritis. But really, we have to think about what are some of these, more, some of these bigger traits? What are the personality traits? And this is what psychologists and psychiatrists describe as the big five of describing people's personalities. And what effect does this have 
on the outcome of patients undergoing total knee replacement. And does this potentially explain this scenario that I think we all find a challenge to deal with, which is the looks really good on x-ray, looks really good on physical exam, but it just feels bad for the patient. They have a difficult time coping with the knee. And you guys hear these numbers all the time. Patient dissatisfaction after total knee arthroplasty, up to 20%. We think our hips are a more perfect operation than they are, but patient dissatisfaction after total hip replacement, up to 10%. And I'll keep coming back to that 20% measure. 20% of patients' psychological distress in the time leading up to total knee arthroplasty. So there's that percentage that keeps recurring. And rightfully so, I think many uh, companies and, and industry are in search of kind of this holy grail, so to speak. What is going to help solve these 20 percenters to make everybody happy and satisfied after they have a total knee replacement? And there's a lot of time and energy being put into this, and as I said, rightfully so. But does that completely make up for that entire 20 percent of people undergoing total knee replacement. And interestingly enough, I just kind of stumbled across this as I was putting together this talk and just looking at dissatisfaction in general. And if you look at consumer dissatisfaction just in the general marketplace, consumer dissatisfaction with many goods and services, 29%. And they're clearly defined that there are personal attributes that have a direct and positive impact on patient and consumer dissatisfaction, very similar to the services that we provide. So why are 20% of patients dissatisfied with total knees? Clearly, I think we realize there are technical errors that we create. I think one of the big issues that also we create is unmet expectations in patients undergoing surgery. But what about their psychological traits? What about some of these personality characteristics? What about resiliency? What about grit? How does that affect patients' outcome and their ability to cope with having an implant and being able to move through or rebound from a stressful situation? And the real question is, and we've seen some literature come out, there's actually very little of it, if any, in the orthopedic literature looking at resilience, and it has an effect on patients' recovery from total shoulder arthroplasty. There's a lot of work that's being done in other areas with resilience, particularly in patients that have cancer. But can it be taught, and is it modifiable? We're very fortunate to, I think, arguably have probably one of the world's thought leaders in the area of resiliency, Dr. Wayne Sotil, uh, who joins us here today. He's the founder of the Sotil Center for Resilience that's actually in, uh, in Davidson, North Carolina. He has a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of South Carolina. He's been on the clinical faculty at Wake Forest in Tulane. He has over 60 peer-reviewed publications, many of which are in orthopedic journals. He's authored nine books, and he's had over 9,000 speaking engagements on this topic, both nationally and internationally. And he's been a visiting professor at many of your institutions, including Mayo, Harvard, Vanderbilt, Ohio State, and Washington. So we look forward to hear what he has to say. Likewise, I think we're all aware of the issue that we've created with the opioid epidemic. We represent 5% of the world's population, but prescribe 75% of the global consumption of narcotics. I found this article quite interesting where it talks about patients on opioids and particularly as it relates to arthroplasty. And it says it's highly likely that high opioid use is a consequence of an undiagnosed and untreated underlying psychological factor affecting the ability of the patient to cope with pain experienced by those patients that have osteoarthritis. Things like rumination, magnification, and the feeling of helplessness after surgery. And I think we all realize that patients that are on opioids going into surgery are more challenging to deal with. They have higher rates of revision and higher rates of dissatisfaction. And we know, as Kevin Bozik have showed us, that if you can reduce their opioid consumption prior to surgery, they have better outcomes. But the question is, how do we do that? And we're very fortunate to have Dr. Guler here from Duke. Dr. Bolognese was, uh, was kind enough to... Um, to be able to uh, get her expertise here to help us. She did her residency at Boston University, her fellowship at Mass General. She's been the director of pain services both at MGH and UC Irvine, and currently serves as professor of anesthesia and executive vice chair of operations and performance at Duke. She's very well published on this subject, including many, many uh, articles uh, in the orthopedic literature. So I'm going to first welcome Dr. Wayne Sotil, who's going to speak with us about can surgical resilience be assessed and shaped in total joint arthroplasty. Please welcome both of our guests for this symposium. Thank you. Thank you all. It's an honor to be included. Um, I have no disclosures. I do have um, 
a disclaimer in that is I have no idea what it's like to be an orthopedic surgeon. I'm a clinical psychologist. Plus, I grew up in Cajun country. Any of you ever watched that stupid swamp people show, catch alligators with their hands? It's filmed nine miles from the home, my, my home, my house I grew up in. And cages are notorious for getting the right concept, wrong application of things, and ignoring the obvious. The master practitioners of Cajun logic my brother Glenn, my cousin Bonadonna, I was visiting recently. I have hundreds of relatives still there. And uh, they were asking, now, what do you do exactly? You, we understood when you were in clinical practice, when you saw patients, now you consult. What does that mean? I said, I travel around the country, and people, and people ask me questions, and I kind of give them some answers. And they said, you pay, they pay you money for that? I said, yeah. Next thing I knew, they opened the Glenn and Bonadonna's House of Cajun Consultation, right on the Chafalaya Spillway. $3.65 to answer any question you want. First man drove up, said, what's the fastest way to get from here to Lafayette? Bonadonna looked at Glenn, looked at the man, said, you walking or driving? The man said, I'm driving. He said, that's the fastest way, $3.65. <laughs> so I'm going to give you my $3.65 worth on this. Now, I do know some stuff about good stress and bad stress and well-being, ill-being, particularly as it applies to physicians in medical families is it of the the uh and i know a bunch about resilience that's what i've studied for the last uh, 43 years um the medical my wife and i have focused on uh, understanding learning from teaching about the uh, resilience of physicians we've had over 12,000 physicians as individual clients or patients. Dr. Rothman invited me to some of the inaugural uh, versions of this meeting out by the Dallas airport, Hyatt, wherever that was. And then I was talking about how to help orthopedic surgeons be less pissed off and miserable. But now, what brings me here is another train of uh, work, and that is uh, clinical and health psychology. I, did, I, I consulted with Medtronic for over 10 years about the psychology of device acceptance, cardiovascular rhythm management devices at the time. And as Brian said, we don't have great data um, specific to joint replacement orthopedic patients. However, we've got useful information and food for thought from other places. One of the things we know is that resilience is different than grit. Grit is the capacity for, to bear through. Every one of you has grit. Resilience is about technique. And uh, there are tactics and strategies that are evidence-based that distinguish people who are resilient from those who are not. The, the American institution that first embraced uh, teaching application of resilience uh, science was the U.S. military in helping uh, soldiers who are going to be deployed and their families pre- and post-deployment. So there's some research, Brian alluded to it, I'll just add a little bit. We have some guided speculation, though, and some working hypotheses we'd like for you to consider. Bearing in mind, we're dealing with psychosocial issues here. And the psychosocial underbelly of your life, your family, your marriage, your team you work with, and every patient you deal with, that psychosocial underbelly is always multifactorial, is multimodal. Many variables apply, some contradict but don't cancel. We accept that about certain things like grief. I intensely grieve my mother uh, who died just a couple weeks ago, and I'm very happy she died. Both those things are valid and reliable. We want to go to work because we love our work, but we sure love to stay home and play with our families. Both apply at once. They contradict but don't cancel. Your patients, many are resilient, but also are suffering and are challenged in their resilience. Now, one of the multifactorial things here is, is to bear in mind, it's not bimodal. They either got it or they don't have it. For example, in a, uh, does a history of prior trauma with orthopedic patients uh, matter? Actually, trauma history enhances recovery, according to some studies. This is part of the boom of post-traumatic stress, uh, not stress disorder, but post-traumatic growth syndrome. The majority of people who go through traumatic experiences grow. And if we learn to use the language to help them tap into the lessons they learned by, through going through prior trauma and in in apply it to the current coping challenges, your surgery in their recovery, then you're more likely to fulfill this mandate from other orthopedic research that resilience plays a significant role in recovery and should be incorporated into the routine care 
of uh, uh, orthoplastic uh, patients. Now, in this psychosocial underbelly, I think that we need to bear in mind that you're considering, at Brian's leadership, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And Dr. Moon, Harvard Business Professor, says that in our high-tech age, the people that are going to distinguish themselves, the organizations that have distinguished themselves, are those who do something that's hard to come by. It's a big old idea, but it is intensely human. Intensely human. We've got to integrate concepts from diverse fields in order to do this. Every great notion has come from integrating concepts from diverse fields that other people did not see as being related. Now, we can learn from other patient populations by recognizing those at risk. We know, for example, that there are some people who are just difficult to deal with people. They're called type D personalities. Whether you're married to one, work with one, or are trying to treat one, there are people who have a lot of negative emotion, and there are ways to chart this very simply that they're stressed, they're depressed, they're angry, they ruminate a bunch. What we know is that type D personalities have more negative affectivity than positive affects, and this is the flip of what we know from resilience research. It's not the people who distinguish themselves, no matter who we study, are not lucky enough to avoid having a lot of hassles. They're mindful enough to orchestrate a lot of uplifts. And that's where the teachable moments come from. There also are people who tend to restrain expression, appropriate expression, of their negative affectivity. Now, the ways we can measure this very briefly with between two to five, um, or in some instances, 20 item scales that will measure resilience. What we've got to learn is to focus on not just assessing resilience, but also figuring out, well, what helps these patients to cope? Now, again, born from another field in uh, the world of cardiac, I was on the, um, my first job after graduate school, I was right after the Civil War, I was on the faculty at uh, Wake Forest in the medical school. And we became the world's first multidisciplinary cardiac rehab program. And I was the first psychologist. And uh, so I, we got a lot of information on cardiac psychology. What we know, for example, is that you get a 30 to 40 percent uh, diminishment in cardiac events and uh, mortality and clinical, in a boost in clinical outcomes comparable in post-recovery, uh, post-MI patients if you do some stuff. Now, we've done all kind of stuff that takes time, energy, and money groups, coaching, counseling, individual stuff. We don't have time to do that. So the question becomes, how can we shape this resilience in a more time-efficient manner? In resilient coaching and strategies, you can incorporate in office-based and bedside kind of, if you're going to talk to your patients about something, consider talking to them in these terms is what I'm proposing. And then the question becomes, can we research this and demonstrate its efficacy? When our patients are facing a similar to what you're facing in medicine, what's life like? It's like once, just when I think I'm getting there climbing this rock face that's my life, I look up and the darn thing got taller and steeper. You gave me this diagnosis. And the challenge then becomes how might you make sure to do what it takes to climb the rock face? Anybody who's a rock climber knows the mistake to avoid is grasping for things you can't reach. What you want to do is pay attention to what's beneath your feet. What might you, what might you help patients to rethink, reframe, or redo? This is the toxic stress scenario. I've got this highly demanding circumstance, I'm living in pain, or I'm treating you who's in chronic pain. You don't feel in control of it. I've done what I can to replace the joint. Now I'm not in control of it. And the danger is that then we turn on each other. Because of what's happening in my life, I get grumpy with the people in my life, my own team for you, my own family for them. Anything you do, here's a resilience strategy, anything you do for your family, your marriage, your team, yourself, your patients, that boosts actual and or perceived support and or control increases the odds of resilience. I'm going to say it again. It's the most important thing I'm saying. Anything you can do and just be creative to boost actual and or perceived support and or control is going to increase the odds of resilience. What you focus on magnifies. If we focus on 
teaching the notion, you can do this, it is challenging, let's do it together, you're much more likely to have people move in that right direction. Now, consider whether or not we're offering the right kind of support to people. It's not enough just to solve the problem. It's all like you're driving down the road to have a flat tire. You got to change the tire, call your brother-in-law to change the tire, call AAA. That's the problem-focused coping. You replace the joint. But then you got to cope with the feelings you have about having had the flat tire or the irritation about how long it's taken. That's emotional-focused coping. And this is where, we're, where we have faltered across all disciplines in medicine in helping people to manage the emotion, to promote emotion-focused coping efficacy. This is about soliciting support, offering support. This is about rethinking, reframing, distracting oneself rather than over-focusing on the pain. If you get people to simply chart how much pain they're in, what they start noticing is more tolerance of the pain because we scan for the catastrophe and have a lot of anticipatory anxiety about it. So little strategies like this can make a difference. Now, we know that we want to help patients by giving them some anticipatory guidance and help shape resilient attitudes for them. The biggest risk to changing for good is negative emotions and interpersonal tensions. Think about yourself. How often have you decided, I'm going to eat less, uh, I'm going to eat more healthily, I'm going to drink less, I'm going to get more sleep, I'm going to exercise more frequently? What's the biggest risk to you? The answer is thousands of times for most of us, and then we fall off the wagon. What's the biggest risk to sustaining that positive, adaptive, resilient course? Negative emotions. It's when you're stressed, frustrated, angry, sad, feeling misunderstood, that you decide, what the hell, I'm not just going to have a glass of wine, I'll drink the whole bottle, right? I'm not going to have just one piece of cake, I'll eat the whole cake. It's negative emotions. So what can we do to help boost positive emotions? What we've got to do is learn to help people counter daily hassles with daily uplifts and to broaden and deepen their relationships. There are certain attitudinal constructs that uh, correlate with resilience. Uh, one is not blind optimism. It's realistic optimism. People who come in with a blind, there are two groups that are going to fare worse. The cynic who are going to tend to discount the efficacy of anything you suggest they do, and the blind optimists who are going to tend to not be very adherent medical patients because they think their special selves are so blessed it's all going to go okay for them. What we want to shape is realistic optimism. Climbing this rock face is tough. Not everybody makes it. But I believe in you, and we want to engender a, a message of hope to them but a message of challenge. You've got to be challenged by this and commit yourself to meeting this, the three C's of the attitudes that correlate with resilience. Challenge, commitment, and control. And we're going to give you some tools to help you learn to manage yourself as we're going through this process. A second is meaning. People are great at dealing with anything if there's meaning in the journey. Meaning, however, requires a third attitudinal construct, which is wonderment. We need to help people see the familiar in unfamiliar ways. Sometimes that means seeing themselves in unfamiliar ways. You've been through hard times before. Let me find out what they are. If you've been through that, you can get through this. We'll help you, and we believe in you in that regard. Now, you know meaning and wonderment correspond. If you help people see the familiar in unfamiliar ways, they assign a different value to what they're going through. So for example, I'm washing these dishes and um, all they do is get dirty again. I'm wasting my time. It's lost its meaning. Um, when I wash these dishes, wonderment. See the familiar and unfamiliar ways? Uh, when I wash these dishes, I protect my family. It changes the meaning of the experience and my experience in that. There's got to be meaning in going through the hard stuff you ask them to go through in recovery. Every day you go through this, you're a step closer to getting to whatever it is, a goal that you, that you want. Bonadonna had a truck for sale forever. Glenn said, why does that truck sell? How much you want for it? Bonadonna said, I want uh, $6,900. How many miles you got? Uh, 212,000. Nobody's going to give you $6,900 for a truck with 212,000 miles on it, Glenn said. Take this little gadget, change the odometer. I bet you sell it. Next time he saw Bondana, the for sale sign was gone. He said, you sold that truck? He said, sold that truck. That truck don't have but 18,000 miles on it. Why would I want to sell that truck? You've got to give him wonderment. 
We've also got to promote the psychology of incorporation. It's not that, oh, my life or my career was going along fine, and then this happened, it disrupted me, but it's that my life, my life, family, my world for me is great, and now I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with uh, this joint replacement. Um, George Clooney, the actor, uh, I, I saw an interview that is, this is an example of psychology of incorporation. He, uh, at around the time of Academy Awards, they were interviewing him. He won an Academy Award for the thing, uh, uh, Soriano or something. During the Olympics is when I saw him interviewed. And they said, after that movie came out, you disappeared. He said, how come? He said, I had chronic headache syndrome based on a spinal injury I got filming. There's a scene where they strap me in the chair and the bad guys knock me over repeatedly and I got a cerebral spinal fluid leak or something and it gave me chronic headache syndrome. I got profoundly depressed. He said, and I, he said well, what happened? He said, well, my life was over. So every day I had a headache. What was the turning point? Finally, some clinical and health psychologist gave me the magic concept. He said, look, you keep being disappointed and surprised when you wake up having a headache. You've got to decide to incorporate this into your life. You've got to decide to think as though I was born with a headache. And when I wake up in the morning, the question is not whether I'm going to have a headache. I am going to have a headache. The question is whether or not I'm going to have a good day. That's the psychology of incorporation. And that's what we want to promote for, for folks as they're moving along. We know that in addition to the attitudinal constructs, we need to give people a coping roadmap that helps them make sense of what they're going through. And we know that we can't do it alone. We've got to, we've got to focus on the primary thing that our patients want from us, and that is not always apparent. The different people who have perceived social support do better. But sometimes that means they want information. Other times that means they want somebody to hold their hand. Other times that means they want tangible help or advice about how to get up the stairs or come down the stairs. Different people are going to want different things at different times. Now, what is the primary predictor of how your patients are going to do? I would say it's their adherence to well, your treatment recommendations, right? Now, this is I've been studying since the, since the uh, uh, 70s. And I, got it, I did an update. Last night when I got in, I, uh, for the heck of it, I Googled medical adherence. Is today the 6th? What is the date today? That's not right. What's the day? I did this tomorrow. I got the Cajun logic on it. If you Google, but I really did Google this. If you Google medical adherence, you get 10,200,000 articles. Now, some of those are written by somebody's Beulah from God knows where. So do this. Do a PubMed search for medical adherence. You're going to get over 40,000 articles. So I just said, you know, some of those got to be not so good. So what if I could do a factor analysis? And I did it last night. What I did was a meta-analysis, then I factor analyzed to get the crucial variables. It was a, I did a Cajun medical analysis. The end was just about one gazillion subjects. And I submitted it and published it in the Journal of Important Things You Ought to Know About. Yeah, the Cajun Journal. And here's what I find. Patients who think you like them are more adherent. It's even better if you really do like them. It's about your relationships, right? What we know is that um, from the cardiac psychology, what was the most predictive factor in diminishing anxiety, depression, and subsequent death rates? The patient's relationship with the cardiologist. How you treat them matters. It's not just you, it's also your staff. Teamwork matters. You can't do this on your own. It's not a solo endeavor. So just to show you from the world of if you, it, not only, Brian said something interesting, and that is uh, treatment improve patients' depression. I would encourage us to think way outside the box, and that is flagging and improving the depression probably improves the recovery. I can tell you, at the Quadag Rio program, for example, if a person came in obese, smoking, sedentary for 40 years, uh, in everything else, it used to be our only goal is to get them to stop smoking. That same will be sedentary, uh, hadn't exercised forever, uh, chain smoking, hamburger eating person who came in depressed. The only goal we had was to get them undepressed because nothing else is going to help if you don't get them undepressed. That psychosocial stuff either becomes the adhesive that allows your interventions to stick or washes off the stickiness of your interventions. We got to do it as a team. 
and I just showed this in the treat, primary care treatment of depression, it's all about collaboration that matters, or telehealth follow-up, or the collaborative team. You say grace over it. We know this from psychosocial interventions like smoking cessation for patients. The intervention, the nurse says, here, I'm going to give you some information on smoking cessation. Compared to the physician says, it's really important to me for you to stop smoking. Now this woman or man is gonna give you some information about how to do it. The adherence rates for the intervention when the physician does an 18 second intervention that sets up what the other people does are threefold higher. We've found that over and over and over again. You can't do it all, but you can oversee it all. So I encourage you to screen for coping struggles and coping strengths. I encourage you to offer a menu of resilience-boosting interventions. I encourage you, I didn't have time to talk about it, but thinking family for those people you flag as high distress, lousy attitude, kind of uncomfortable for me to deal with them and get them to the point where they have some hope, to incorporate conversation with family members by someone. And I encourage you to follow up, follow up, follow up. Psychosocial adjustment is not a, a singular event. I know you don't follow the patients forever, but creating the notion of we're going on a journey together and I'm gonna do my best to create a safe space for you is I think the thing that'll make a difference. So heroes create safe spaces for other people. Where are the heroes? I hope you guys are them for these patients. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. That was that was a wonderful talk. I'm sure it'll generate a lot of lot of questions. And next, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Padma Guller from Duke, anesthesiologist, and she's going to talk with us about perioperative perioperative optimization of pain management. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, looking forward to discussing uh, the care of the challenging patient that many of us um, have to take care of every day, and that is the uh, chronic pain patient, the patients who are already uh, on high-dose medications, for instance, for, to cope with, those, uh, with the pain, and who come in then for surgery. How do you uh, handle that? How do you take care of it? Again, I have no disclosures um, as well on this topic. Um, the things I'd like to talk about is preoperative opioid use, how that is actually a modifiable risk factor uh, because it does predict poor surgical outcomes, and if we can do something to modify that, uh, we could change those outcomes. What is the rationale? How do you do it? How do you uh, approach these patients with regards to opioid reduction or cessation? Uh, what is the role of perhaps a dedicated clinic that could actually help with, these, uh, with the more challenging of these patients? And uh, what are the best strategies as we, uh, as we move, uh, move forward? So what is the case for change? Why are we doing this? You know, as Brian mentioned just before, uh, you know, huge issue in the United States. We have, uh, as a nation, we prescribe more opioids than any other in the world, and in proportion to our population, we use the most. The prescription drug abuse epidemic, you'd have to be under a rock not to have heard that that has been affecting us immensely as a nation, as a society, as a community. Um, for many of us, we think it's distant, and then you'd be surprised if you don't really stop to think about how many people, even in your immediate vicinity, have been affected by this in one way or the other. Uh, our belief also in the health system or you know, hospital system is that these patients are the ones that um, you know, are more challenging to treat. If you were to walk your hospital floors and ask your nurses or, or you know, your, the rest of your team, which group of patients comes to mind as one of the most challenging to treat? It's not uncommon for that to be that chronic pain patient or the opioid tolerant patient. Or when you review a chart or your team is reviewing a chart and sees that this patient is on opioids, that head hangs a little bit. You know, the, here comes a difficult conversation. Here's the patient who's not going to be satisfied. Well, we, uh, you know, what I'd like to share with you is some of our experiences at Duke um, and, and some of the things we've done to try to uh, identify and address these issues. What you're seeing over here is a dashboard that um, basically allows us to monitor all the patients that come into the health system with the question of you know, opioid tolerance. How many patients are coming into uh, you know, our admissions who, have, uh, who are already on high-dose opioids? And what do we describe? What is defined as high-dose opioids? 60 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents a day. Um, that's not much. The average patient on a few uh, oxycodone a day can hit that number very fast but they have to be on it for at least seven days. And what we found is that about one in 12 patients admitted to Duke Health, and this is 2016 data for us, uh, were opioid tolerant at the time of their admission. 
Um, and then we looked to see, are their outcomes different? I mean, we, we think they are, but are they different compared to patients who are not? When it came to the length of stay index, which is the observed length of stay compared to the expected length of stay for these patients for the condition they came in for, it's not that bad. It's about the same. We have great length of stay initiatives, and we get these patients out reasonably on time in spite of the fact that they are many times, if you review the chart, challenging courses, hospital courses. However, the challenge is we get them out of the hospital, but then look at our 30-day readmission rates for these patients compared to naive, the naive patients. It's so orange being the opioid tolerant and blue being the naive patients. And it's significantly increased, significantly increased, almost double. When you look at their emergency room visits, again, 30-day emergency visits, significantly increased. What about the med harm rate? How many times are they, these patients having safety events? Definitely higher safety events in the, that population compared to the others. And their patient satisfaction will come as no surprise to you. They are less satisfied with their care than the patients who were not on opioids before they came in to the hospital. So this is in general. We take a subset of this in surgery. Same thing, probably actually even broader differences between the two groups. And when we specifically looked at our or, you know, orthopedic joints, et cetera, that difference you know, persisted or actually, again, as I said, can be highlighted even some more. So we took the approach you know, around the, uh, the concepts that Dr. Sotil um, described, which is that these patients could benefit from more specialized support and care so we can improve their outcomes. Most times this is elective and we have that opportunity to actually optimize these patients before they have the surgery and potentially uh, improve their outcomes. So the perioperative pain care continuum is the way we describe it. And what we have done is we have established a clinic where patients from the decision to surgery, so you've decided you are going to operate on these patients, go ahead and refer these patients to us. You saw in Dr. Sotil's talk, he was talking about identify the patient, maybe run the psychological screens, et cetera. We recognize that that is not easy in busy surgical practices you know, to do. So our requirement for you is just if you think, your nurse thinks, your front desk person thinks that this person is going to be high maintenance, for lack of a better word, that they are, you know, have increased needs, they're not responding even to their preoperative education easily, they have a lot of anxiety, they're, you know, they just don't seem like they're there or their family doesn't seem like they're there. Uh, that would be the only criteria we have for you to send them to us. We will do the screening in that clinic, okay? The clinic is staffed by the same people who follow the inpatient um, uh, uh, patients uh, on the inpatient pain service. So the faculty have that co continuity, you know, because they're uh, the same folks, and the patients get that continuity. We are multidisciplinary, so we have nutrition experts, we have access to pain psychologists, physical therapists, etc. And we have access to specialized testing as well. Some, and we don't use this widely, but pharmacogenetic testing is something we may actually employ in some of the more challenging and intractable cases. Um, so what do we do? The patients can come to us anywhere from one to three months before surgery. Obviously, the more time we have, the more we're able to do uh, with the patients. But we see patients even sometimes as, you know, as late as two days or four days before surgery. Why do, we, why do we agree to do that when we know we can't do too much? Even that one visit where we're able to set some expectation, set some goals with them, understand them a little bit better, helps us some in the uh, post-operative recovery phase. We, all, you know, we are available to follow these patients inpatient as well, um, but more importantly, we're also available to take care of these patients for 90 days after surgery. So why did we do this? Why did we have, you know, decide this is a continuum? because there were two gaps in care that were identified with the traditional models. One is optimizing these patients before they came in. I can't tell you how many times when we get a pain consult, we go and see the patient in the recovery room or on the floor in, in distress and review the chart, you get the opportunity to say, wow, if we had had an opportunity, this was you know, not unexpected, if we had just you know, uh, had an opportunity to talk to them before, we could have changed some of this uh, you know, uh, expectation. The other gap in care is we get them all beautiful, shiny, we get them all in perfect shape in the hospital, they look ready for discharge, they are ready for discharge. But once they get discharged, there's the other second gap that comes because once the patient goes home, they're moving a little bit more, they're doing, you know, or not complying, adhering to, you know, the regimens that have been um, recommended, they finish their month's supply of medication in three days, you know, all those good things. And, and you're thinking to yourself, like, what happened? You were doing just fine, you know, how come you go home and this happens? And then what do you do? Should these patients then come back to the surgical offices? And you're looking at it, and from a surgical perspective, everything is fine. 
but this is now more, you know, coping, behavioral, you know, difficulty understanding uh, instructions that are otherwise simple, uh, and just complying. Um, and, and then they are complaining of immense pain, and technically there's nothing more that can be done for this, you know, this particular issue. So where should this patient then go? To their primary care physician? To maybe their chronic pain management physician, if they ha have one? And you'll wonder sometimes because, you know, they don't seem that eager or able to uh, adapt to this either. And so what's the difference? What's going on? It's the subacute phase. So the patient is ready for discharge but they are not in a chronic phase, which is why the chronic pain physician has, a dif has difficulty with this patient in setting boundaries, setting expectations, and managing the situation. And the primary care physician is equally feeling like this is subacute, you've just, you know, recovering from surgery, I'm not completely sure what to do. And so we recognize these two gaps and realize that the best team that can manage them, which is both preparing them for uh, the upcoming surgery and following them for at least 90 days afterwards. Now you may ask yourself, why did I draw the line in the sand in, at 90 days? Why not 30? Why 60? Why not 120? Well, the general phen phenomenon is that if you have pain for greater than three months, it is now more of a persistent state. It has hit more of the chronic state. And therefore, we drew the line at 90 days and said that if you continue to have pain at that particular point, you probably should be more in a persistent or chronic pain setting management as opposed to the subacute setting that this provides. So again, uh, decision to surgery, so who would you send? As I said, you know, all of these patients. On the left, you'll see the chronic pain patient, opioid use, substance use disorder history, if they're on medication-assisted treatment, et cetera. But on the right, you'll see I have depression, anxiety, personality disorders, catastrophizers. What a strong word, catastrophizers, you know. By the way, the scale used to measure this is called the uh, you know, um, uh, pain catastrophizing scale unfortunate choice of words, but it is what the official name is. And I can't tell you how many times when we administer this, we have both patients and providers, you know, calls back to say, what does this mean? You know, because it's a very negative connotation, as you can imagine, you know, uh, for folks to deal with. However, one of the key components, uh, I can tell you, which we find extremely helpful in identifying patients who need additional help. So what do we do in our preoperative risk assessment for these patients? We do all the screens. So they come to us, they will get the pain catastrophizing, they'll get that promise, they'll get the depression scales, they'll get all of that. We'll be checking if they're on opioids, we'll be checking their prescription drug monitoring program. If they're not on opioids, we'll be checking their prescription drug monitoring program, okay? Because they may not have been on opioids this last week. Um, assess risk for potential respiratory depression risks, you know, the other factors as well. So we're looking at all of these factors in an attempt to get a comprehensive look at what the risk factors are for this patient to not do well after surgery. But by far, one of the things we found most useful is the pain catastrophizing. So in our clinic, these patients would have done all these screens before I go in to see them. And I can tell you that I, my eyes hone in on what their PCS score is. If it's greater than 20, right, I know who I'm going to meet when I go into that room, okay? And that's how useful this test is, even though, again, as I said, unfortunate name there. So what is catastrophizing? It's defined as an exaggerated negative mental set. See the common theme Dr. Sotil was stressing on? Brought to bear during an actual or anticipated painful experience, okay? This is the person who really believes if they hurt that they may never get better, okay? And you're thinking to yourself, why would they feel that way? There are people who feel that way, and these are the people who need the additional help. But can you do something about this, especially in like a preoperative setting? Isn't mental health or you know, all of these coping resilience strategies, don't they take a lot of time? Um, well, actually, there are, you know, well-studied programs which in a, within a few weeks we can teach these patients skills that can help them through the perioperative period. And so cognitive behavioral therapy, by far, the use of multimodal treatment, you know, specifically acceptance and commitment therapy, really help these patients. So whenever we can, we have a social worker who provides this within and locally with our clinic. But if your score is too high, we actually involve the pain psychologist to start providing this, um, this kind of therapy for these patients. There's also medications that can be started, which may well. You know, Brian mentioned situational. If we start to suspect that this is more situational, uh, this particular, you know, uh, it's, uh, for, the, for this particular patient, there are medications like Lexapro that we can start, which may be helpful in that immediate preoperative setting and get them more optimized uh, for the surgery. So what are our goals of care? We want them to have optimal pain management. I stress this all the time to the patients. We don't want you to hurt. We're looking to find ways to help you feel better. Early mobilization, a lot of chronic pain patients and, or patients in pain, their mentality is, when I get operated, then I'll move. 
So they actually reduce activity. They're not moving as much. You know, they're waiting for this perfection to happen. It will happen. They will get better. There is no doubt because, mo as you can see from the data, most of our patients do do better after surgery. However, there is that period of recovery where they may actually feel a little worse those first few days. And if they don't move, however, their complication risks go up. So educating them before on the importance of early mobilization helps. Our goal is to reduce those health length, length of stay, prevent readmissions, but also improve patient satisfaction. And you may say lofty goals. You're going to talk about, you know, uh, difficult things like opioid weaning and then patient satisfaction in the same sentence. We focus on it through psychological optimization, medical optimization, and physical optimization. So these are the different components that all patients who come through us will receive in terms of, you know, different therapies. And I'll talk, I'll speak to the ones that really matter uh, and where we found most of success. And it will not surprise you to see that of the 34 things, when we established this clinic, we looked at 34 modifiable factors that we could um, help patients optimize. I don't know about you, but I cannot change 34 things about myself given a few years. I definitely cannot change it given a few weeks, right? So we, we brought it down to three main things that we started to find were helping patients the most. One was preoperative opioid weaning. You've already heard some of this, you know, uh, from our other speakers, which is this does help. If we can reduce their opioid doses before surgery, patients do better afterwards, okay? And there is data in joint surgery, abdominal surgery, spine surgery now that shows that a reduction in preoperative opioid use results in better outcomes for these patients later. What is the target opioid reduction? This paper will tell you that about 50%, that you really have to get a patient's opioids reduced by at least 50%. It didn't quite make that much sense if you think about it. So if a person goes from 400 to 200, their results are the same as someone who goes from 200 to 100. Um, and, you know, and a funny story is we actually put this in our uh, you know, education material that our scheduling folks would speak to the patient on. And one of the, one of the patients showed up you know, at my clinic and said, Doc, I've already taken care of it for you. I said, what, what have you taken care of? He said, well, you're, you're, you know, they told me that what you're looking for is a 50% reduction in my opioids. I said, wow, yeah, okay. I said, yeah, so what have you done? Because I checked your prescription drug monitoring. I'm thinking to myself, and you're not on any low dose of medication that I can see. So I said, what did you do? He says, you wanted a 50% reduction. I only use 200 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents a day. Obviously, he didn't say OME, but his, his medication dose. And I said, oh, yeah, well, that's kind of high. And he says, no, 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 but I was on 400 four weeks ago, and I brought it down to 200. I said, yeah, but for the previous year, you've only been on 150. Yeah, so what happened? <laughs> so what happened was when we called to schedule them, he went ahead and increased his use of opioids with his prescriber, and then came, by the time he came to the appointment, brought it down to slightly more than he regularly uses, hoping that that would be the end of the story. I would tell him he's perfectly optimized and ready to go on. So we've learned not to advertise the 50% reduction. We actually look for effective reduction uh, more than anything. Here's you know, a, a good paper that you know, has been mentioned before by Brian, which shows that this can actually help, like a 50% reduction in joint surgery patients can really, really help. So what's better than opioids? That's the problem. You can talk to your patients and say, reduce, you know, reduce your opioids, and they're going to look at you and go, I hurt. And you're asking me to reduce pain medication. Well, the truth is that we ourselves as practitioners, many times don't believe there is, there are things better than opioids, you know, for pain relief. Many of us do think that we have to give opioids in order to get pain relief. But it's interesting that if you look at this Cochrane review over here, the number needed to treat, if you look at that, patient, you only needed one, to treat one and a half patients with ibuprofen and acetaminophen to get relief, 50% pain relief, whereas you needed to treat 4.6 patients with 15 milligrams of oxycodone to see 50% pain relief. So yes, these medications, which seem, they, might, they couldn't possibly be great, they're available over the counter, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, you know, that's what you get for a headache, mild headache maybe. But really for more chronic pain, these can be helpful. They can be helpful. It's all about dose and appropriate, you know, um, management through there. The other part that we've learned is our patients actually don't understand the risks of chronic opioid therapy. We start them on it, and they continue on it, but they don't know these facts. So we have this thing called nine things to talk to your patients regarding long-term opioid use. And two of them, you'll notice, point two and three, really hit home when we talk to our preoperative patients, okay? We said, if you are on chronic opioid therapy, your infection risk is increased. Your wound healing is impaired. Is that what you want after surgery? These are two things you don't want should happen to you after surgery. The perioperative period is actually a wonderful teaching period. 
you know, we talked about weight loss, you know, you know, each of us having resolutions that I want to lose weight. I have it every New Year's, that's it. I last about, you know, Jan 2nd, Jan 3rd, before I have that negative emotion uh, take over and I, I let go of it. But you know, the other reason for that is, I'm thinking perfection and I'm thinking long-term. This is for, for the rest of my life, I am gonna lose this weight and stay that way. It's a big, that, that mountain's really big to climb uh, as you're dealing with the day-to-day -day stresses. But the perioperative period is actually a time-limited episode. And if you talk to a patient and say, would you like to be engaged, you know? Because they feel out of control when you've come, told them that they need surgery. Most of them feel out of control. But you can give them some of that control back by saying, you know, you can prepare for your surgery. You can do something that could actually improve your outcomes after surgery. They relate to that. People are motivated. And guess what? If you could just stick to this for six weeks, six to eight weeks, doesn't sound as much as a lifetime, you know? If you could do these three things for the next six to eight weeks, your chances are gonna be improved by 50%. They're in, they want in. You'd be surprised how many times after we've had this conversation, the patient actually will tell me, you know, the truth is I don't take these medications that much all the day. So no, I don't need six weeks to come off, you know, or get down. I can actually do this over the next two to three weeks. They get really motiv motivated and engaged, but it takes that time to speak to them. The other thing is, it's not just about opioid reduction. How do we give them that pain relief that they need in order to you know, stick to that recommendation? We do use other techniques, other medications, combinations of medications. What I tell them is we have to chip away at this. You may have not done something before because it didn't last long enough, but again, you were planning for the long run. Right now, all we need is about 10 to 12 weeks. If you can get relief for 10 to 12 weeks and come off your opioids some, we have, you know, we've, we've got to win. So that brack pain patient who says, you know, I had a radiofrequency lesioning, but it only gave me like, you know, six to eight weeks. So my chronic pain doctor said, don't do it again. I said, I'm a chronic pain doctor. I'll tell you right now, don't do it again. Not for chronic pain. You can't come in here every two months and you're not going to get this radiofrequency. It's not going to help you. And the risks are higher, you know, and we can't repeat it so often. But six to eight weeks of relief in the perioperative period suddenly became really attractive. If you can get that six to eight weeks and use a lesser dose of opioid and we can see your outcomes improve, why not? So that's the way we start to think about it. We start to review everything that they've had. Um, uh, so even the patient who comes into your office and says, I've tried everything. Nothing works for me except what I'm on right now. There is opportunity right there. Genicular knee, you know, blocks for knee, uh, even for knee pain, uh, you know, have been shown to, uh, to help with this patient. Nutrition and pain. So that's the second thing we start talking to them about, nutrition. You might think, and I'm, I, I thought so too, I'm a pain specialist. What does food have to do with anything? But nutrition does have an impact on their pain experience as well. Harvard, Mayo, a lot of places have got websites that you can refer patients to where it talks about foods that promote inflammation and foods that don't. Again, let's not be unrealistic. Person hates broccoli, they can't be eating broccoli, even if it's six weeks. You cannot get them to do that. But what you can get them to do is say, go look at that list, and all I want you to do is the foods that promote inflammation, avoid them for the next 10 to 12 weeks. The foods that aid, you know, are anti-inflammatory, Find ones you like and just make sure your plate has a lot more of that for the next 10 to 12 weeks. Patients find that achievable and will engage in that process. In fact, in serving our patients later, this is one of the things they came back and said they continued with eventually, right? Music therapy, again, sounds a little bit like esoteric. Why, you know, what's music got to do with anything? Well, there's data that shows that people who are, get received music therapy do better. And here's another thing you can just do in the office. You don't have to send them to a music therapist because music is actually very personal, okay? In fact, to tell you the truth, the first time I did get a patient back from a music therapist, he told me, I can't stand this music. This list that was developed, I can't stand it, it's driving me nuts. And I said, okay, that makes sense. You need to find music that relaxes you, okay? So that's what we tell them, go home. Don't find the music that you enjoy because you want to get up and dance because that's not gonna help you around this chair. You want the one that you want to sit back, let the chair take your weight, and just, you know, dream off. That's the kind of music you want. And we want you to listen to it for the next eight to 12 weeks. Bring it with you, in fact, to the uh, hospital. Listen to it after surgery. Way better than watching TV, because the last time, you know, you binge watched TV, I bet you didn't want to, you know, feel hale and hearty. Two movies and you're ready to take, get some fresh air. So, and yet in ho many hospitals, that's all we do. We have TV for them, uh, you know, to watch. So instead of that, we tell them, shut us out. Helps with a quiet healing environment and also listen to positive music that's more likely to reduce your stress. We do talk to them about prehabilitation, which is movement even before, you know, activity, increase your activity. The data is not as strong on it uh, just yet, but nonetheless, again, it allows the patient to feel engaged. All we say is five minutes more than you're doing now, but make sure that you're moving. 
I'll share very quickly a few of our uh, results. So these are, you know, we've had this clinic since March of 2017. Um, and this data, you know, was studied July 2018. I have a more updated set, but it's not um, clean yet. So the first thing we looked at is we, we included patients who had completed all three phases, which were preoperative optimization visit, they'd had their surgery, and that completed 90 days post-visit. So our study group had about 176 patients. We compared that to about almost 8,000 opioid-tolerant surgical patients who had surgery along that you know, same time. So considering that as the benchmark, we want to see did our patients do the same, better, or worse. When you look at the case mix index, which tells you how sick they are, our patients were definitely had more comorbidities, the patients were seen in the clinic compared to the other. And the patients came from all services. As you can see, we had joint patients, we had spine, cardiothoracic, you know, general surgery patients in here. And what were our outcomes? Well, as far as the length of stay index, it was definitely positive. It was 0.98 versus 1.03, but not statistically significant. You know, we didn't make a statistically significant difference, but definitely the trend was positive. The 30-day all-cause readmissions, however, did improve in our subset compared to the, uh, the others, and the emergency uh, room visits definitely significantly went lower compared to the, um, you know, compared to the others. But the, probably the part that we are most, you know, encouraged by is the opioid reduction. So, on, you know, at first perioperative appointment, we looked at our patients, they were on average on 200 um, oral morphine equivalents uh, a day. Preoperatively, we were able to wean them by, on average, about 18%, because, you know, this is, again, right from the beginning, and some of these patients came to us a few days before surgery, et cetera. Um, but, and as expected, at discharge, their doses went up some. But the part that was key was at 90 days post-discharge, so these are chronic pain patients who are on baseline home opioids, many guidelines will tell you, victory if you can get them down to their home dose, just get them back down to their home dose. We actually, in our patient subset, see a 44% reduction in their home doses in 90 days. And that really is, uh, you know, is, is very encouraging because the control population is usually 20 to 25% higher than their baseline at 90 days uh, post-operative. Um, we also, you know, are monitoring our um, patients as they go through, um, you know, with different DRGs, and you'll see the joints up here. In 2016, with all of these interventions, et cetera, about 72%, the orange color is the interesting color there, patients who came in naive but were discharged on high-dose opioids after surgery. 72% of our joints were leaving on a reasonable dose. Now, it's not astronomical, but definitely a reasonable dose of opioids in 2016. If you look at it now in 2018 at Duke, only 25% of patients were leaving on um, high-dose opioids who weren't on it, uh, you know, prior. And actually in 2019, our new data shows 6%. So there's an ongoing decrease in the amount of patients we're sending out on high-dose opioids. Well, one may say, that's great, we reduced the opioid dose, but does that mean we changed any, you know, other things, or are there unintended consequences? So we've also been monitoring the med harm rates, which is those safety events, and the orange line, as you can see, went significantly lower. So we have less harm events in our patients as well, these chronic pain patients. And the patient satisfaction, I can tell you I've been doing this for uh, you know, a decade and a half, and moving that patient satisfaction for that population is extremely hard. And yet, for the first time, we've actually seen that improve in the chronic pain patients, surprisingly. They're happier. Even though we're prescribing less opioids, they're actually happier than they were uh, before. So we've seen some good trends uh, towards uh, where things are with some efforts to um, you know, provide extra care. So I'll end with that. Thank you very much. Great, thank you, Padma. And thanks to both our speakers for, for excellent talks on a lot of information. So we have probably take eight or 10 minutes for questions before we break. Kevin? Yeah, so first of all, uh, excellent symposium. Thanks for bringing that together, uh, Brian. Um, we, uh, I, I practice in a situation where we have embedded mental health providers on our team, and we screen for GAD2, PHQ2, BRS on every patient. Our goal is to identify patients that we think are at poor risk, uh, are at risk for poor outcomes from surgery. Um, and we've done a couple of things. We train our entire team from medical assistants uh, on up in, in empathic communication skills to try to get at some of the things that Dr. Sotil was talking about. We think that all of our job is to increase and improve resiliency amongst our patients. But there's a subset of patients that we know are at risk for a poor outcome that we want to transition into cognitive behavioral therapy, some other way to modify that risk factor. And it's that transition from 
us as the musculoskeletal team to the mental health team, even though they're embedded in the practice, it is really difficult and challenging for a lot of patients because of the stigma that goes along with that. And we've tried a number of different uh, ways to do that, but we, we really haven't had much success in making that transition. So I'm curious from either of the speakers what, how you communicate that to patients and how you make that transition. Um, what we found in Cardiac Rehab after, I, I, the first 10 years, we found that a few than 20% of patients that we flagged uh, and nationally, the data were similar, uh, who needed more extended psychosocial intervention, like cognitive behavior therapy, who got referred, only about 20% followed through. We changed that at Wake Forest to about um, 68% once we made it mandatory and did not make it a big deal. That we conceptualized the, um, and we first of all framed it as coaching. I um, mean, we're doing this now at Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute at, at um, Atrium, this is where I consult now and am here thanks to their sponsorship in Charlotte. Um, we conceptualize as part of the process, the perioperative process in your, your uh, regard, would be participation in this extended coaching uh, program. Now, even that, you know, we're losing a fourth to um, a third of them who just refuse, who drop out. So for, for those particularly difficult people, we, tr we tried to mandate it. I would, I would share that experience. I mean, it's a combination of things, though. Uh, for us, what we try to do is that 18 seconds of, you know, education that comes from the surgeon, that comes from us uh, consistently, they're, they're more likely to see the MDs, you know, for pain than they are to go to the cognitive behavioral therapist. So we've incorporated social workers. They are in the clinic with us. We make it a combined appointment so that they're not feeling like they're going for behavioral health alone, which is really where the issue comes in, which is if you tell them go for a behavioral health visit, which by the way, as they try to schedule that, they'll be, it'll be drummed into them. Your mental health benefits don't apply here. You know, they, they're discouraged at a, at a payer level significantly from, from a lot of these activities. And so it's really what we say at that particular time and how we incorporate it as this is part and this is an expectation. This is something you will need uh, you know, to, to succeed uh, with this. this is, we're not, and the other factor is not differentiating them, not telling them that they are worse off or there's something you know, uh, extraordinarily wrong with them that requires this additional care, but to make it more mainstream and to say these are things all of us benefit from. And we want to make sure you have that because we want your outcomes to be the best. So just more of a positive message, and especially coming from um, a you know, cohesive message from, our, from, from surgical colleagues as well as us is what, when we start to see engagement from the patients. The other thing that we've found helpful is at Duke, for instance, patients come four hours, six hours away. And when you tell them that they have to come for cognitive behavioral therapy in addition to everything else two to three times a week, it's, it's hard. You know, it's realistically very hard. So we have moved, again, it's score dependent. You know, if they are in the moderate range of risk, we provide them with online resources. And what we have instead is our social worker will check in with them to say, hey, how are you doing? Can I help you? Have you had difficulty with the, and we are now, we don't have it yet, but we can actually log their use so we know whom to call and whom to encourage uh, you know, to participate in some of that. I would also just finally say, you guys are already you know, three standard deviations above the norm training the team that you have, accepting that empathic communication is a key. These are difficult patients to deal with. It doesn't mean let's give up on them, but let's not be demoralized. Even those who come to see people like us, we have uh, less than gratifying uh, results in a lot of the work that we do with those really difficult to deal with patients. So don't get the team demoralized based on a smaller percentage <clears throat> of folks. Keep trying. Question here? Yeah, thank you for these very helpful presentations. I'm just wondering about the finances of all of this. Um, is Duke eating the cost of your services um, because of the downstream benefits, or is this something that actually we can bill and get paid for? Yeah, I'd like to say Dr. Bolognese is supporting us 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, so this is, you know, from the medical side of things, this is... Uh, visits that can be paid for, so we do not get a subsidy from the institution. But we do get support in the form of, uh, you know, the space, et cetera, obviously, um, uh, to, uh, it's a hospital-based clinic. But other than that, no, the providers do not get an extra subsidy to see this population. We, you can bill for them. 
They are your um, typical E&M visits um, that, you're being, you're, that you're billing for, because this is not part of the perioperative, uh, of, of the preoperative testing or, you know, the referral from you guys is really important. So if your referral says this is outside of, which is why you're referring, there's something additional in this patient that they could benefit from optimization, then that falls outside that, you know, um, just preparing for surgery or checking, clearing for surgery uh, kind of a concept. So you can actually bill for these uh, visits. And I mean, it's not, it's not gonna be the one that your hospital looks at and says, wow, fantastic, what an opportunity, quite the opposite. Uh, in that regard, it's more the indirect benefits that, um, you know, that are key uh, as far as that's concerned. So, uh, is it scalable? You know, I did show you a Cadillac model. We have nutrition experts, you know, pain psychologists, et cetera. We didn't start that way. So can this be done in the community? Can you do it with, you know, existing providers and existing mechanisms? We strongly believe you can. We did it this way because I think we particularly see a complex uh, you know, population and they need that additional help. But some of this can be protocolized, as the you know, pre previous person who was asking a question said, by uh, just integrating it into existing workflows. The, uh, the key is identifying and providing that additional support more than anything. Bill? I'll give a shout out to Padma. She's gotten patients of mine off or radically reduced the amount of opioids they've had pre-op which I surprised the hell out of me. But anyway, my question to you is, is the definition of high dose versus low dose arbitrary? I see 30 morphine equivalents, 60. And is, are the people that are below high dose not worth your time? Or what do you think there? Um, I actually don't, I'm not a proponent of dose-based risk stratification. Because uh, very honestly, you know, five milligrams of opioid in a person like me would be too much because I just don't have that kind of you know tolerance or or, or things along those lines. Uh, these numbers, you know, where did they come from? That's a really interesting question. Different states have different cutoffs. The CDC says 50, the FDA says 60, Ohio says 80, and Washington says 100. Well, it all came with the overdose risk. What they're looking at is that as these as you get past these cutoffs, more patients tend to overdose or uh, tend to have more of the more uh, morbid uh, and you know mortality related outcomes. And that's where they have the cutoff. For us in the surgical uh, environment, where we're talking more optimization, that's why I don't believe it is dose-related. It is more just the fact that is this patient well pain-controlled? Are they needing a significant amount of opioids to do it before surgery? Because it makes common sense that after surgery they're going to need a lot more, and they're going to hit those dangerous, you know, uh, markers rather fast. So. It's, uh, I do not believe in the dose as much. I, I genuinely welcome any patient. I said my only criteria for a patient coming to see anyone in our clinic is the fact that you think that something may not be you know, in, in this patient's best interest as far as outcomes are concerned. And last question right here. Uh, information regionally in Illinois for billing, geriatric behavioral health bills at 140% over cost. And that's only behind wound clinic, which is 150% of cost. So geriatric behavioral health reimbursed well in Illinois. Thank you. If there's no other questions, I, I would like to take a moment and just thank our speakers who took time out of their Saturdays to come up here and speak with us. Bridget Board Pediatric Surgeons, thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.